Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Continuing our verse-by-verse study in Revelation, today we open chapter 2 and begin a comprehensive look at the church in Ephesus. Pastor Alex begins by examining some history of Ephesus to give us more context to the letter that Jesus wrote to this church. This is part one of a two-part message on the letter to Ephesus. Here is Pastor Alex Cateroja. All right, we will pick up and continue our study in the book of Revelation. And as I mentioned in our introductory comments, we've turned a chapter, which is a milestone in and of itself. We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, and we will pick it up in verse 1. And the title for our message today is the actual context of our passage today, and it's a letter written to the church in Ephesus. So as we begin chapters 2 and get into chapter 3, we get into the seven letters to the seven churches. And for our study today, and the focus for our study today, is to look at the first letter to the seven churches, and that was to the church in Ephesus. Um, I do want to kind of recap our context as we turn the chapter and turn the page of Scripture, and here's kind of where we are. Remember from the very beginning, the Father gave this great vision to Jesus. Jesus gave it to the angel. The angel gave it to John. And what we've learned when we've studied all of chapter 1 now is that both the Father and the Son are speaking throughout this entire chapter. And we really needed to pay attention because we, we wanted to be able to try to follow which person of the Trinity was speaking. And we found that to be very, very enlightening for many of us because I think it really helped us understand the relationship in the Trinity even that much more. And we've covered so much kind of sub-themes in chapter one. You know, one of my favorites is you know, both the Father and the Son are coming. I know a lot has been said that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming and the second, you know, He is coming in His second coming. And that is true. But what we've learned is that the Father is coming too. Of course, the Lord Jesus first. And then when He's all done, the Father at the very end. And one of the kind of capstones, I would say, in all of chapter 1 is that Jesus is coming with the clouds. And Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And we've learned there there's going to be a great resurrection so that every human being who has lived from the time of Adam to the time of the seventh trumpet, that every human being will see the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some unto damnation or condemnation, but for those of us who believe into eternal life. So the whole book of Revelation was really captured in that phrase that He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. That is the revelation, the apocalypse, the apocalypsis of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've also learned in chapter 1 is that the Father is the highest authority and that He in turn gave His Son all authority and Jesus among other things, among His many titles, is the faithful witness. And 
as we've kind of progressed through chapter 1, John saw in his vision, uh, he described what he saw. He saw seven golden lampstands, and he saw the glorified Son of Man standing in the middle of the lampstands. And what we've learned is that the description and posture of Jesus is that he is ready to judge and reward and even make war. I know um, for, for many of us, we might have been told of a Jesus just one-sided, that Jesus is love, Jesus is, you know, wants to be your buddy, Jesus has a wonderful plan for you, and all these things. And it's not that Jesus isn't love and all those things, but what we're learning in the book of Revelation is there's much more to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of them is He is ready to come and judge and reward and wage war, which is why and helps explain why when we get and we progress into the study, we see the Lord Jesus Christ with His robe dipped in what? Blood. And His name is what? The Word of God. And what was written on His thigh? King of kings and Lord of lords. The posture of Jesus that John is describing in vision that He is putting in human words, among other things, is that He is a judge and he is not only judge and priest, but he's also ready to reward and wage war. And a reminder of our approach, as we've continued to study the book of Revelation, we're going to continue to take it chronologically as it's given. And our goal is to read and study Revelation with the lens that there is a literal meaning with a literal fulfillment. Yes, it's going to use uh, imagery, it's going to use descriptive languages, but it is communicating a literal truth that'll have a literal fulfillment. That's our goal, and that's what we'll continue to do. And what we're also going to continue to do to keep us from kind of getting lost in the book of Revelation and getting lost in the sea of men's opinion, because a lot of people have a a lot of different opinions or perspectives concerning the book of Revelation, but what we're going to do to help keep us going from the left or to the right is to keep the direct intended recipients in view. So let me say it this way. If you study the book of Revelation, just know that, first of all, the immediate recipients or the immediate audience is the seven churches. So it's the seven churches present at the time that John penned this letter. We have to, when we read Revelation, we have to keep in mind that he is writing directly to those seven churches. But as we know through Scripture, truth and prophecy is not limited to just that church, that it transcends time. So there is also going to be intended future recipients, and as we'll see, the 144,000 sealed Jews, the two witnesses, and certain certain saints. Not all of us are really going to be implicated in the book of Revelation, but depending on what epoch of time we live in, we might find ourselves among the intended recipients of this letter. So we're going to continue to stay true to that approach. And the pretty neat thing about Scripture is it interprets itself. Not only does it interpret itself, it tells you how to interpret it. So in our last study, back in Revelation 1.19, the Scripture tells us how are we to view the book of Revelation. John, he, John was given the instructions, write the things which you have seen. Okay. John was given the command to write. And he says, write the things that are, present tense, which is why we're going to, okay, what's are, what is present to the time of John? That's how we study the book of Revelation. As I mentioned, right now he's writing to the seven churches, so we're going to read it 
just like he is writing it to those seven churches, just like the Apostle Paul wrote letters to the different churches and even Timothy and Titus. We read it understanding that he was writing to them. We're going to read the book of Revelation the same way. But it also says that write the things which will take place after these things. So not only was the book of Revelation, we are to understand it in the immediate setting of John, but we're also to look at it uh, with a kind of future prophecy in view. So it has prophecies that will extend beyond the seven churches to the very end of time. And what we've also kind of deduced from our studies is because he's right the things that are and the things that will take place after these things, that tells you the letters to the seven churches and there's prophecies in these letters. That's chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4 is not going to take place until after these things, until after the letters, after the, what was written concerning the seven churches, including the prophecies that were written in those churches. Until that's done, then you'll get to chapter 4 and beyond. So it also kind of keeps us in line, like don't put chapters you know, four before three or seven before five, you take it in the way that it is given. So chapter four is a prophecy in and of itself that's not going to be fulfilled until after what was written in the letter to the seven churches takes place. And where did I get this from? The scripture. So it gave us kind of some uh, anchors so that we don't go from, you know, swing from to the right or to the left, and that we don't insert our own opinions. And as a reminder, it's always good to have some visuals here. Because the book of Revelation, the primary intended recipients were the seven churches. Uh, in this map, it does depict where the seven churches are, and it is you know, in biblical times, uh, New Testament times, Asia Minor. And as you'll see here, the dots here represented, the red dots, those are the seven churches, which was in Asia, Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And as we see, it pretty much is on the west side of Turkey, as we know today. And it you know, pretty much is close to the Mediterranean Sea or the great Rab Yam. And then off the coast, off of Turkey, there is this island called Patmos. You see that dot there? That's where John was given this great vision. But as you kind of see, where does it fall with respect to Jerusalem and Israel, because Jerusalem and Israel is also on the western side and sharing the Mediterranean Sea. But you know, you go from Israel today to Lebanon, Syria, then you get to Turkey, and then if you keep going north, you will get to Greece. But the letter to the seven churches is off really off the west coast of modern day Turkey. And there you can see Ephesus. It's pretty much right there on the the coast, which will come into play when we start to learn about its historical context with respect to commerce. Now, before we even get to the letter to the seven churches, what, we, what we've been doing is doing our diligence. What does the scripture tell us about Ephesus, first of all? And then we will go to history where needed. So let's look at what we can learn, whether it's through the Scripture and then where necessary in history to learn about the church in Ephesus. And as we know, the Apostle Paul wrote to them. That's where we get the book of Ephesians. And if you're 
just wanting to take notes. Ephesians was one of the prison epistles when Paul was in prison, and he wrote the, uh, Ephesians while he was in prison, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And if you take a look at Scripture, how many times did Paul visit Ephesus? He made two visits. And the first visit was during his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18. And in that first visit, you know what Paul customarily did when he went from town to town during his missionary journeys? You know where he went first? He went to the synagogue. When did the synagogue meet? Every Sabbath. So when Paul, he made it a custom when he would come and preach the gospel, he would go and, and teach the gospel, but he would you know, look to go into the synagogue to reason and persuade the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So wherever Paul was, he first went to the Jews. There came a point in time where the Jews just continued to resist him to the point where Paul just shook the dust off his feet and kind of protested against them and saying, you know what, from now on, I am going to the Gentiles. But until that time, Paul would visit the synagogue and preach the gospel. And during the second missionary journey, we have some familiar names that was in Paul's company. We had Priscilla and Aquila. And when Paul visited Ephesus the first time, Priscilla and Aquila were with him and he left them there. And then sometime after Paul left, you might know this other familiar name, Apollos, arrived on the scene. And the scripture de described Apollos as mighty in the scriptures. And it also tells us that Paulus, Apollos, even though he was mighty in the scriptures, at one point in time, he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And it was then that Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos understand the way of God more accurately. So if you were to kind of ask the question, who was responsible for establishing the church in Ephesus or for supporting the church in Ephesus? It is likely that the Apostle Paul, in partnership with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, they were instrumental in strengthening the church in Ephesus. And that was, so that was his first visit during his second missionary journey. And again, that's in Acts chapter 18. And then Paul came to Ephesus for another visit in chapter 19. And this was, you can say, part of his third missionary journey. Now, this visit was extensive. So Paul only went there twice. The first one, it doesn't really tell us how long, but the second one, he was there for over two years. And by the time Paul arrived in Ephesus, Apollos did end up leaving already. And it was during that time when Paul found some disciples and they first received the Holy Spirit in Acts 19, and they also began to speak in tongues and prophesying kind of as evidence that they received the Holy Spirit because they didn't even hear what the Holy Spirit was about until Paul helped explain them and the baptism, um, not only of John, but then also of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul, when he went there the second time, once again, he tried to reason and persuade the Jews in the synagogue, and he did this for three months. So every Sabbath for three straight months, he went into the synagogue, Paul, in Ephesus, and he tried to persuade the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, but they resisted him. He wasn't well-received. So he said, okay, you know what? I'm, he withdrew from them, and then he went into a, was at the, the court of Tyrrhenius, where he actually taught both Jews and Greeks, it says, for two years. So he went to the synagogue for three months, and then he ended up teaching at a certain place there, and he taught Jews and Greeks for two years. 
And while he was here during the second visit, remember he was there for over two years, he performed great miracles while he was there as evidence of his apostleship. And his miracles were so profound that even when handkerchiefs or aprons touched him, that it was brought back and it healed. And as we know in today's you know, Christian circle, you know, a lot of false teaching take this and exploit it. And they'll actually say, hey, give us money and we will send you this handkerchief. Or you know, send us money and we will send you this holy water. And they will use you know, Paul performing great miracles and even the handkerchiefs or aprons were anointed and they would sell this stuff. But that's just kind of conjecture there. Uh, but when we get to Acts 19, and this is during Paul's you know, second missionary or um, second visit, third missionary journey, we do get some characteristics of Ephesus. Remember, what we're trying to do right now is we're going to read a letter that John wrote to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And we want to know what can we learn about Ephesus from the scriptures first so that we have a backdrop and try to understand the letter in Revelation. So in Acts 19, we get some characteristics of Ephesus. What was Ephesus like? Well, there was people who were demon-possessed. If you thought for a moment that maybe demon possession was really limited to the time of Christ or kind of somehow stopped after the time of Christ and his ascension, no. By the time we get to Acts 19, and you know this is after Christ's ascension, there were accounts of people being demon-possessed. So demon possession didn't stop when Jesus went back to his Father in heaven. And another characteristic of Ephesus. Many practice sorcery, witchcraft, magic arts. And we get that in Acts 19, verses 18 through 20. In fact, there were some who were being converted out of that, and they brought their books to get burned. And it was counted that it was about 50,000 pieces of silver. Kind of put that in perspective, Jesus was sold for only 30 pieces of silver. But these books of sorcery sold for 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the worth of it. Here's where we're going to spend a lot of our time and focus. The temple of Artemis of the Ephesians was obviously in Ephesus. And there was this temple, and we'll look at a little bit more about that, dedicated and erected and built and constructed to this Artemis of, and she's known as Artemis of the Ephesians, and we'll look more on that. But Paul's preaching of the gospel was causing a great disturbance and uproar, and that it even resulted in the riot that's recorded for us in Ephesus, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And as you kind of continue to look through the scriptures, we know that in Acts chapter 20, Paul sent for the elders, and they came to see him, and Paul gave his tearful farewell, saying that they're not going to see him again. So the last contact that he had with the elders, at least physically, is recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. But I do want to look at Artemis a little more. Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, from a Greek perspective, the name was Artemis. If you were to go to the Romans, they call her Diana. In Greek mythology, 
Artemis, or Diana, was the goddess of the hunt. And when Paul would preach the gospel, and as I mentioned, cause this great uproar, and the silversmiths were you know, causing this disturbance, saying that Paul, because of his preaching of the gospel, is saying that God, you know, gods you know, or uh, idols made with hands are no gods at all, and they're losing business, caused this great disturbance and riot. And it got to the point where the people in Ephesus would shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. You can, they can also say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's the same goddess. And if you're looking to Greek mythology, Artemis was born of Zeus and Leto. And Leto was actually a cousin of Zeus in this Greek mythology. But Apollo, but it was said in this Greek mythology that Artemis had a twin, and that was a twin brother, Apollo. So Artemis was said to be the embodiment of the moon, and Apollo was said to be the embodiment of the sky. Now, when you look at the statue of Artemis, it presents her with many breasts. If you're wondering what are all those things on her chest area, that's supposed to represent that she has many breasts. Why? Because she's the great mother of life. Not only was she considered a goddess or the great mother of life, but she was also known as the goddess of silver, hence the silver shrines made idols of Artemis in silver. And it was also claimed to be that this Artemis rode on a silver chariot. Another, you know, Artemis had a lot of, I guess you can say, titles. She was the great mother of life. She was the goddess of silver. Another thing was she was a lady of the wild. Wildlife was sacred to this goddess, Artemis. How many of us heard of Save the Whales? Animal rights? You know who's behind that? At least ancient, at least going back to the time of Paul or time of John? Artemis would be a big proponent of that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care for creation and we shouldn't appreciate our creation and we shouldn't abuse our creation. I'm not saying any of that. But anything that holds animals sacred and even elevates it to the level of man is something that Artemis was all about. Now, a little bit about the temple. Now, this temple, she had a temple built. It was massive, and we'll see a little bit about that. But Ephesus was regarded as the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, and it was believed by the Ephesians that her image fell from the sky and landed in Ephesus. And that's recorded for us in Acts 19, verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? If you were to ask the Ephesians back then, where did Artemis come from? Well, her image fell down from heaven and we are simply 
just acknowledging her deity as a goddess. So Artemis, at the Artemis's temple, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, I don't want to bore us with too much history here, but before Artemis, there was, and before the, her temple was constructed, it, was, it actually belonged to another goddess, and her name was Cybele, the goddess of abundance. And she was also known as, coincidentally, the great mother. So what happened was, before Artemis's image fell from heaven, and before they reconstructed the temple in her honor, the goddess that was before her was a goddess named Cybele. But what happened was, that temple was destroyed by a flood, and then it got reconstructed. It took 120 years to build the temple dedicated to Artemis. 120 years. And then Cybele is no more. Artemis is now the focus. Uh, if you're wondering, you, know, you hear of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, along with there was the statue of Zeus. There was the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. There was the Colossus of Rhodes. And there was the Pharos, or also known the Lighthouse of Alexandria. And of course, there is the Great Pyramid. I think that's probably one that we figured what was one of the seven wonders. The Great Pyramid at Giza. And there was in Babylon, ancient Babylon, the hanging, of, the hanging gardens of Babylon. So the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, even to the time that um, John penned the book of Revelation. So at the time of Revelation, the Temple of Artemis is still there and is still one of the seven wonders of the ancient world at that time. So with that, let's begin our scripture reading now, the letter to the church in Ephesus. We will read Revelation 2, the first seven verses, and I will be reading from the NES. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place." unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that'll be our scripture reading for today. So with that, let's begin to kind of walk through First, let's look at the first half of the first verse. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And we've covered this before. Angel is agalos. 
And agalos means messenger. And that messenger can be an angel or it could be a human messenger. And the context will tell you which one. As we will see, as we continue in this study, the angel or the messenger or the agalos here is not a human person. It is a angel who was assigned over this church in Ephesus. We're going to see that it becomes more evident that the angelic involvement is elevated, especially as we get further and further and closer towards the end of time. So a good way to understand this, when we read the letters to the seven churches, there was an angel appointed over the seven churches. So this letter, and this is something we need to keep in mind, when we're reading the letter to Ephesus, it's really to the, it's addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. There is this dual audience, dual recipients of this letter. And as we will see as we continue, hopefully it'll become a little more clearer about that. But now let's look at the second part of the first verse. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Well, the one is, of course, the risen Son of Man in John's vision from, John, from chapter 1. Who holds in right hand, and we've covered this also in prior studies, when you hear who holds or right hand, remember right hand is associated with a lot of different things. The context is going to tell you, but the context here, the one who holds and right hand, it's in reference to power and authority. And as we know, the seven stars are the seven angels and the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And when the last part of 1B says this, when it says, says this, this is directly from the risen Lord's very lips in John's vision. But here's kind of a, a summary, or here's a, a translation of what verse 1 tells us. This is what it means. I know it's fancy. I know it's highly illustrative words. But here's what is being communicated in verse 1. Jesus has power and authority over the seven angels, over the seven churches, and is walking among them, ready to render a verdict and either discipline or bring reward. That's the translation of verse 1. Now let's get to verse 2. Here's what Jesus says. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So let's kind of unpack verse 2 a little bit. So deeds, when you see deeds, it can be rendered works or behavior. Toil is kapas from kapto. And toil, it, hopefully the word kind of captures it actually in our English, it means wearisome labor. labor. So if you're doing some really hard wearisome labor it's toil you know kind of like by the sweat of your brow kind of is the idea so jesus knows their their works their deeds or behavior and their toil or wearisome labor and also he calls out their perseverance uh, perseverance 
can also be rendered patient endurance. They're patiently enduring. And as we've learned in way past studies, patient is another word of saying long-suffering. So when you have perseverance, and that's characteristic of you, you have kind of this long-suffering through that toilsome labor and work. Uh, Tolerate is bastazo. Uh, the idea is to carry or to bear or to carry. So think about a burden. That's more of an idea for tolerate. Uh, evil men. Uh, there was a lot of evil men in that town. There was a lot of sin going on in Ephesus. Uh, but he's saying, you know, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate or bear the evil men or the burden that they bring. And the evil men would also include false apostles. And he says, and you put to test. Test is a periazo. And test means a trial or experiment. Uh, so you know the Lord's, uh, the, the Lord's prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Temptation is parosmos. It's the same root word for pyra, which is shared with test or, you know, perazo. So temptation means test or trial or experiment. And the false apostles were put through some sort of trial or experiment, so they had some sort of way to kind of gauge whether or not someone who claimed to be an apostle and was not, that the church in Ephesus kind of put them through some sort of test and found them to be false. You can only presume that was through Scripture. I do want to ask this. I know you're, um, when Jesus begins and saying, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. Who is this initially addressed to? And I want to say this, and it's going to be beneficial for us to kind of pay attention to this because we took that same approach when we tried to understand who's the you, who's he, who's him, when the persons of the Trinity were speaking, and we found that to be insightful because that helped us understand the relationship in the Godhead. So when I'm saying, I know your deeds... Who is this being addressed to initially? Very good. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. So the angel is also being spoken to here. But it's a little confusing because sometimes you're like, it's speaking to the angel and sometimes it's speaking to the church. Just like when the father and son speaking, sometimes the son speaking and sometimes the father is speaking. And you got to pay attention because there's some other words or Descriptions that tells you which leads you one way or another. But kind of keep this dual audience in mind. And you hopefully, as we continue to study, it'll become a little more clear. But I wanted to point out that angels are working too. And they toil and persevere to some extent. I know we probably tend to read this and say, okay, you're just writing to the believers or people. Well, yeah, depending on the context, yes. But because this was also addressed to the angel, you can't leave them out completely. How can you say right to the angel in verse 1 and then everything is about people after that? No, you have to pay attention. So let's continue on. Verse 3. And your perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So now when we get to verse 3, who's you here? And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is a now addressed to believers. How do we know this? Angels don't persevere nor endure for Christ or Noma, nor grow, grow weary. Believers do. So from here, we get a flavor 
that there's a dual audience in these letters to the angel assigned over that church and to the believers who are in that church. Now, not coincidentally, when you read like Ephesians 6, and when Paul says, put on the full armor of God, who is he writing to? Ephesians, the believers in Ephesus. When he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities in the heavenly places. That explains even here, Jesus is addressing the angel over that church, and he's also addressing the people. Because our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, and principalities in the heavenly places. So what's interesting is sometimes we might not consider that when we study Scripture. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we, we hear that, and then when we read this, we forget about that. No. This is also written to the angel over that church. Let's go to verse 4. But I have this against you. Jesus goes on to say that you have left your first love. Jesus is still speaking, but I is the Lord Jesus. He's the one speaking. I have this against you. Who's you? Well, I say, well, yeah, it's speaking of believers, but can I, can I suggest something? It could also mean that angel. I have this against you, angel, over that church, that you have left, have left. This is a future tense. This is a prophecy. When John wrote, you have left your first love. That's prophecy. Ahead, sometime after John penned this letter, this will come to pass. Left is aphimi. And it means to let go of oneself. You let yourself go. First love is protos agape. And it means first and foremost love. And I think we've, some of us who've been in love, We'll say, who's your first love? When you're saying, who's your first love? You know what you're saying? Who was the first person that was the most important to you above all else? That's the essence of what is spoken of here, of the protos agape, that you have left your first and foremost love. Well, who's the subject here? The Lord Jesus Christ was left. No longer first and foremost. Here's the translation. Like, what does this mean? I have this against you. You have left your first love. You know when Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You know what Jesus is telling the believers in that church here and likely the angel over it? That they will let themselves go from their first love sometime after the writing of this letter. Here's, here's just a thought. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. Did you ever think about the angelic rebellion on when that happened? Did you just assume that there was one rebellion at one point in time, and a third of the angels went to follow Satan all at once. And then by the time Satan arrived the scene at the, at the Garden of Eden and tempted Adam and Eve to sin, the rebellion's already done? That whoever rebelled, rebelled? Can I suggest something? That there is a rebellion that is continuing even beyond the fall. What I mean is this. It is possible that even after the fall and as time played itself out, that more and more angels join the rebellion. And this could very well be the case for this angel that was assigned over the church in Ephesus. Probably didn't join Satan the first time, but left the Lord Jesus and left his first love. Thank you so much for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. Be sure to tune in next time for the conclusion of this two-part message on the letter to the church in Ephesus as we continue expositing Revelation one verse at a time. 
If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them on our website, truthmatterschurch.org. Again, that is truthmatterschurch.org. Or search for us on Sermon Audio. And you can also listen to us on your Alexa device by asking it to play the Truth Matters Church podcast. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.